with music, we just had to build our own house. It's an industry that resists change. And I think we all know this. Like think about the, the CD era and how, how long that, that lasted. And again, I think taking that perspective also into what was working for the industry and what was working for the industry in many ways was just diversity wasn't a priority. We didn't see a lot of Asian artists signed by many of the major labels. And because of that resistance to change, it also just never became a priority. And if you look also within the industry, we definitely have a diversity problem. There, there isn't a lot of diverse leadership, at least from the, the Asian perspective. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Jason V. Jason is a VP of Business Development and Strategy at 88 Rising. 88 Rising is a leading record label and media company for Asian artists with over 15 billion streams, 2 billion views, and a number one Billboard album. Jason has also spent time at UBS and Google prior to 88 Rising. In this episode, we spoke with Jason about embracing the confluence of his Asian American and LGBTQ identity, how an American Idol audition led him to discover his path in music and entertainment, and diversifying what it means to be an Asian American artist. Jason, super excited to have you with us today. A question that we'd like to tee this off with is, what was your favorite dish growing up? It could be like a family dish, you know, your favorite takeout. Tell us what that was for you. I won't be ashamed to say this, but this is quite an ethnic Chinese dim sum dish. But my favorite is chicken feet. <laughs> a lot of people think it's it's gross, but it's a delicacy in um, Chinese and Cantonese dim sum. And this it comes in this black bean sauce. You can get it dim sum parlors in, in Chinatown and, and other places. And I've always loved it growing up and I still do today. With the chicken feed, Jason, you're making me kind of think about the different nuances of a delicacy of food in one culture versus something that may be considered gross in another culture. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that point? Yeah, for sure. I I think that that idea also comes with pride for, for your culture. And I would say maybe if I did this podcast 10 years ago and you asked me what was my favorite food, um, I, I may say a burger, or I might say pizza, because it feels like the, the answer where there wouldn't be judgment. Um, but I think, it, you know, I've come to a place where, you know, I no longer want to be promoting that child that is going to school for first grade and like throws their mom's like black bean noodle lunch on the way to school because they're ashamed of their, their ethnic food. I think if you really like something, it's, it's fine to, to share that. And I think in every different culture, there are these nuances with, with food. And to be honest, I think no, nothing about each of these things are disgusting. We should actually spend time to, to learn more about them 
Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like you've really captured this sense of pride around your culture in recent years. From reading between the lines, it sounds like this cultural pride wasn't really a defining factor of your upbringing. So I'd be curious what that environment you grew up in looked like, what values you were brought up with, and also how you came to be more in touch with and generally proud of your heritage. Grew up in a traditionally strict Asian household. I recall my parents kind of whipped out their wooden stick, unfortunately, when my dad got the bill from Time Warner and I had ordered pay-per-view a hundred times, but because my dad had like proactively blocked it so I couldn't see it, I actually was ordering it and it was just a black screen and the bill was like thousands of dollars. They were very upset. And I think just kind of throughout my, my childhood, it was around like following rules. And if you stick to a path and you, and, and you study well, you will be able to, to make something um, out of yourself. I think some of those principles certainly are, are helpful to ground you. At, at some point, you also just have to find your own way and kind of weave that narrative in to, to what I feel like is, is, is my also right path. And, and maybe that's just part of the, the, the um, rebel um, in, in, inside of me. I, I actually was super fascinated by the business world, even at an early age. And, you know, I was obsessed with my huge gateway 2000 computer. And I saw like Amazon and eBay were starting out in the nineties. Um, and I even bought some stuff online and I ended up um, starting a small online business, which was my own way of experimenting with what was happening with the internet in the nineties and also e-com. I built a website, learned HTML and did all that. And it was really initially an experiment but I ended up actually running that business from the age of 13 to 18 and sold consumer electronic through my website and crazily enough, like generating enough profits where I self-funded my, my college degree at NYU from those profits. So I kind of got my one-on-one in business from that, probably maybe got some trust that, oh, like, wow, you know, for my parents that like Jason's really good at business. I ended up going to NYU Stern to officially study business and kind of like learn about all the mistakes I made in my business. But then the rebel number two and three came shortly thereafter, which was, I really wanted to become a singer and this may sound a little left fields, but the American Idol editions were in town. I was, a, I was an investment banker on Wall Street and I told my entire team at UBS on Wall Street and I put in the calendar and I said, if I do not come back tomorrow, it, it's because I already, I would have advanced in the American Idol editions and this is what I want to do. I told my mom and dad and, you know, they had a heart attack, you know, when they kind of said like, why would you leave wall street to, to, to want to become a singer? It was kind of like a, a stop sign that they were putting up. Right. And it got me to certainly evaluate and think about that, but because I still wanted to proceed, I realized that was something I was really passionate about. And unfortunately the next day I did go back to um, my Wall Street job, which meant that I didn't proceed through. But that failed edition, like when I look back, was, was something that really brought me to where I am in my career today. And I had left that edition saying that one day I want to work in the music business. Jason, you're truly the Renaissance man. You made dropshipping cool before it was even cool. And before <laughs> we're joking about how we were going to make you sing while we're recording. 
So that offer still stands, but it sounds like a no. It's an open, it's an open <laughs> space, Jason. Still an open, still an open invitation. <laughs> Jason, I want to, I want to go back and talk about what it was like being an entrepreneur at 13. That's crazy. Where do you think that drive came from to actually go in and start like learning HTML, building a website, building a business, and then paying your way through college? That's crazy. <laughs> like, where, where did that, where did that drive initially come from? It came from the supermarket. This might sound super strange, but I loved going to the supermarket with my mom and dad and not particularly necessarily the beginning where you're choosing the items, but the register. When the cashier would scan the item and that red thing makes the beep and it showed the, the transaction price on the screen, I was completely fascinated about the point of sale. So my first dream job was actually to be the cashier because I thought that was absolutely cool. Like you can just like the price and all that. So me starting the business was me trying to figure out how to be that cashier. And at that time, e-com was just this emerging business. And my business was, was essentially kind of, you know, ringing it up, but we're, we're using the internet. And then the second, I guess, rebel moment you mentioned there was you going American Idol. I remember watching the show way back in the day. It feels like it's fizzled out a bit in recent years, but you know, gotta love Simon, gotta love Paula. Amazing show. It. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I'm the only person that does because of my personal connection to <laughs> now it's Katy Perry. That would make a lot of sense. But on that, you mentioned having a conversation with your parents about going on American Idol. I'd be really curious to learn about how that conversation went. Because it sounds like it wasn't the the smoothest conversation. But also what prompted you to inform them in the first place versus kind of doing your own thing, carving your own path? What, what compelled you to loop them along in your journey? I have a very um, close relationship with, with my parents. So we talk quite, quite often. You know, I also ran that business for, for five years and, you know, I had to say, dad, can you park the car outside the garage because the garage is not my warehouse. <laughs> and so we just, I mean, it was a flowing conversation. You know, I actually thought that they they would kind of enjoy the American Idol conversation because we watched that show growing up in our home. It was a staple. So it was it was always like this, this show that we would look forward to. So when I told them, I thought that they might actually, you know, a small percentage probably that they would react positively. And they, you know, my mom's response is, oh, like that's, that's kind of a joke, right? I mean, obviously you love what you do in, in investment banking. And the reality is that I actually didn't love, love what I did. And I think some of those questions that they asked me got me to think, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of this perspective of how things are going on paper versus like, how is it really going? And actually at that time on Wall Street, I, I was quite unhappy because I started in 2007 and things were fine and the IPO market was great. And then we went to the Great Recession and I saw some of the downsides of the industry. And you know, I'm sure everyone's been following what happened recently with, with GameStop. And you know, that made me feel, again, actually somewhat upset because I felt like the whole Wall Street industry did not even change that much. And it's been 12 years since I've been there, right? It's kind of this club that still sometimes is, is inaccessible. And I felt like there was just this dichotomy and it, it didn't feel right to me that I could, I could make a bigger impact. You know, I wasn't sure what that was at that time because, you know, I, I went to NYU and this was one path. 
but I just felt like if I just followed what I truly wanted to do, and for me, Wall Street at that time just wasn't it, maybe I would get closer to that path. And I've always loved music growing up. American Idol was the show that we watched with my family. So I decided to say like, hey, this is just something I wanted to do. And that conversation did not go well. <laughs> but, you know, my parents were like, like, why, like, you know, in this recession, like, how would you want to even think about jeopardizing your job and, and all these other things? And in some ways, my parents was right. Like, me, you know, maybe it is the safer bet to try to just, you know, keep what I'm doing, earn this income, and zip my lips because the, the world was falling apart at that time. And it was like driving your car to a stop sign where you pause for a moment and you think about everything that my parents were saying. But then after thinking about their criticisms, I still wanted to do it. And that made me realize that was kind of my inner voice that told me this was something that I was super passionate about. And yes, like make an informed decision, but don't also like ignore that inner voice. And that's exactly what I did kind of going into that audition. I love that stop sign analogy, Jason. I haven't heard about it before. Cause I think, you know, there's a common narrative with Asian parents that they'll stop you from doing what you want to do and what you're passionate about. But it's obviously not like that for many people. You know, one of the things that, um, you mentioned is this positive relationship with your parents and having a more constructive conversation with them about, you know, leaving work and auditioning for American Idol. And there's several things about you that kind of make yourself like really unique. One of those is, is coming out, you know, how did coming out end up impacting your relationship with your parents? Um, and then also how did it impact your professional journey at all? Sure. And I appreciate you, you asking that. That was definitely one of the more difficult things I had to wrestle with because with that traditional Asian parents mindset, I, I really didn't know how they felt about it. So I came out to my sister first and my sister was, was, was super cool, of course. And, you know, she, she was born and, and, and raised here um, uh, with, with me in New York. So we, we probably just sort of more accustomed to, to those values. But I think what I was worried about was my, my parents just di di didn't have that perspective. And we also didn't really know anyone else, anyone else in our like Chinese family or with, with my extended family that is also gay. So there wasn't a, a, a great reference point. I finally decided to tell my, my mom first. And it was around when I was 25. And this is really unfortunate now that I think about it because it was a Mother's Day. And we were coming back home and, you know, you know, my sister and I paid for our family to go out in Queens and we came home and, and my mom said, essentially like in Chinese, but thank you know, thanks for this amazing like Mother's Day. I think the only thing left that would make me <laughs> proud or excited is your girlfriend. Like what's going on? I've heard, I've heard nothing about that. And I think I just couldn't. Like it just like, and I, and I, when I told my friends this, that they all like freaked out, like you told your mom on Mother's Day, but I, like I decide to, to just let it out and hope for the best. And like, she like cried nonstop for 24 hours. But I think the moment that I realized things would be okay was that that next day, she just gave me a hug and I realized that she was just trying to figure it out. I don't think she understood what it meant. And there was no reference point. There was no one else that she could even ask. It was just this like this education journey. And then I think from that, we told my, my dad and it's been kind of interesting because I think, I, I think a lot of this now thinking back, how I told him so late was just related to, 
I really didn't know how they would react. But some of what my parents shared was around like, you know, why don't you tell us sooner? Like we would have loved to kind of help you through this journey. And there's been a lot of surprises where like, I, I feel like my dad typically feels more traditional. When I um, was dating the person that I thought was going to be the one, I had asked my, my mom, like, you know, can I bring him home for Christmas dinner? And then my mom was like, I guess let me kind of check in with, with dad. Like, I don't know how he feels about it. And then my dad's response was like, definitely. Like, why, why would you even need to ask? So it was just, just kind of like perspective. And, and, and now that person is, is my fiance and, and they love him. Yeah, it's been kind of exciting to see. And I think it's everyone, of course, will have a different journey and story. But I think um, being able to open up also just has made us closer in, in, in some ways, which has been surprising, but also great. Thank you so much for sharing that story. It sounds like a, such a special relationship that you have with your parents. And something yeah. that you noted that I think is so important is just how important it is to recognize that our parents are also human in trying to figure it out as well. And I think when you embrace that mindset, just so much other stuff gets unlocked too. So Appreciate you sharing that, Jason. And on the note of embracing differences and things that make you unique, your sexuality is something that you embraced within the workplace as well. And also back at a time when it wasn't as openly accepted as it is now. Could you walk us through what that journey was like? Sure. This is also just super interesting. I, I definitely feel like the conversation today around LGBTQ have improved so much from where it was but back in the day you know I think my you know my first professional experience was at UBS and I I definitely didn't feel like myself in many different situations because for lack of a better word it was a very macho culture I legit use my BlackBerry to look up football scores the night before so that I can talk to my managing director and be able to laugh about the the sports scores and just kind of fit in in that way. And there, there wasn't a lot of LGBTQ people that, that I knew at the bank and there just wasn't diversity. So from a leadership perspective, no LGBTQ leadership and no Asian leadership. There certainly were Asians around in terms of the analyst class and my peers, but not the top. So for me, that was particularly difficult to see can I actually get to that place? And, I, and how much longer do I have to look at these scores of these teams that I really don't care about? <laughs> so that led me to really leave Wall Street. And I think at some point you just kind of have to analyze the environment and just seek an environment that would be better for you and your situation. I ended up taking a, a one-year stint in Japan teaching English for a year. I'm not Japanese, I'm Chinese, but that was one experience that I thought could get me closer to a, my Asian identity. Just having grown up in, in New York, I've always wanted to live abroad. And I also um, really respected my teachers and at some point also wanted to become a teacher. And also I think there was less of that, I guess, judgment that I felt from, from Wall Street where I, I just didn't feel like I fit in and maybe just being somewhere else where I was unknown and I was starting over, that was that allowed me to really to grow up in some ways. And I think when I came back, I deliberately was trying to choose companies that could at least reflect 
some some of my values and I ended up taking a role at at Disney, which I would say is my first corporate gig in entertainment where I did strategy for, for the Broadway shows. Um, there were a lot of other LGBTQ colleagues and I think I was able to feel a little bit more in my own skin and a little bit more comfortable sharing my my story in the workplace. I love that. And I also, I appreciate the experience internationally as well, whether it's in Japan, um, a little bit later in your career after working at Disney, going to Shanghai and, and working with Google. And, and it seems that's where your interest in, in music became more specified. Can you, can you tell us about that interest in music and, and why you ended up um, choosing that type of career path? And also at the, at the end, would love to hear where you're at now and, and what you're up to right now at 88 Rising. Absolutely. I would say the, the, this music journey really started after Japan. That just kind of gave me a slate to, to really think about what I wanted to do. I knew that I, I was good at business but the finance function wasn't right. And then I thought about the American Isle edition, like the fact that I got, went there and I was nervous as heck. My parents were like nervous about me making it because that would be just terrible for them. Um, and like the fact that all those things, like it made me realize, wait, like those, those are two things that I really wanted to focus on. But it was hard for me to figure out like, how, how do I, can I just jump in and, and go to a record label? So I took a pretty wide approach. And I think also this, this is some advice that I've also shared with others before too. Sometimes like when, even when you're applying to jobs or trying to change careers, there's no magic formula, but at, at some point it is a numbers game, right? Like you only need that one company to say like, yes. And then that could be your break. And I had this, this probably weird combo, investment banking, like teaching English. How do I make it into entertainment or music? And I kid you not, I think I probably applied and dropped my resume to over a hundred places. And I applied to just companies that I think like I was really, that I wanted to work at. So MTV and Sony, Universal, Warner, and I think also like being Britney Spears' assistant. And I was able to get a job at um, Nickelodeon, which is part of Viacom, um, doing strategy for the TV shows. And that was such a an exciting experience because I think like that was my first ex experience in TV and being able to just understand how do you build TV shows? How, how do you sell them? However, at that time, Google and Facebook, like all social media and just the way that we're consuming content was starting to shift. And the role that I took on at, at, at Google for about three and a half years was music partnerships and, and entertainment partnerships as part of the ad tech space. You alluded to the, the, the Shanghai experience. I think that was also experience where, where I got to really expand again back to this Asian identity that I was still kind of always trying to tap to, but maybe to not always understand how to weave it in in the US or weave it in even, even from like a Google US perspective, it wasn't always clear. How can I bring a little bit more of my identity into my work? So working in Shanghai, was also one way of being able to do that, where I worked on, on our partnerships team there. And now you work with 88 Rising. And for our listeners who don't have context on 88 Rising, Jason, also please correct me because I'm probably giving like a very <laughs> vernacular description of it, but it is a, an incredible record label for specifically for rising Asian American artists. Does that sound right? I would say we are now the largest global music company for pan-Asian artists and meaning Asi Asian artists from all backgrounds is we have artists that are from Japan, from 
um, Korea, from China, from Indonesia, and from the Philippines for Asians in the entertainment industry, and also some of the misrepresentation that we're seeing and being able to work on this mission at Eight Rising, which is to be able to put more Asian artists on the map in the US and in globally. And now we're seeing, I think, some of the, the fruits of this with some of our artists doing, doing well. We also have our own music festival that we've done in Los Angeles and had 35,000 people on the ground. And it's been inspiring just to see how we can really move culture forward through the lens of, of music, which I think people really understand. And also it's a medium that transcends language. I love that last phrase you just used. It's a medium that transcends language. And I think that's yeah. so true. I'd be curious how you think about this dichotomy we've kind of talked about with some of our other guests in this first season, which is th this seeming divergence between quote unquote, building your own house and the other way of changing the structure and changing the foundation. I'm curious how you think about, to your point of creating more representation in the entertainment industry, how you think about going down the route of being very focused on the Asian experience versus trying to change some of the underlying systems that are at play at, you know, some of the big guys like Warner or Interscope. H how do you think about those two different paths in approaching this topic of representation? I would say that when you have an opportunity, I think you certainly can can take either either journey depending on like how you feel you can move your agenda forward. And sometimes that's it could be building your house. Sometimes it, it could also be changing the industry. I think in this perspective with music, we just had to build our own house. It's an industry that resists change. And I think we all know this. Like think about the the CD era and how how long that, that lasted. And we were all forced to buy this this album for $14.99. And there will always be like five songs that just suck. But like it's packaged together. And then when we shifted to piracy, the industry did not necessarily work with these mediums, right? What do they do? They try to sue the fans. But the fans were just not willing to pay for the CD that just had all these bad songs. And then streaming happened. And again, I think taking that perspective also into what was working for the industry and what was working for the industry in many ways was, was just diversity wasn't a priority. We didn't see a lot of Asian artists signed by many of the major labels. And because of that resistance to change, it also just never became a priority. And if you look also within the industry, we definitely have a diversity problem. There, there isn't a lot of diverse leadership and at least from the, the Asian perspective. So the reason why I think 88 Rising started five years ago, and this is even before like my, my time, is that if you look at a lot of our artists, they were rejected by all their record labels and they're rejected for two reasons. One, because they're Asian and two, because they're not K-pop. They just didn't show up as a group or R&B for, for Nikki who sings R&B and is Indonesian just didn't make sense, right? Or we also have rappers on our repertoire. So the whole element of 88 Rising and, and why I'm so proud of the mission is to really diversify our definition of what does it mean to be an Asian artist and also to showcase that these artists can have a place in, in the industry. Now you're seeing on, on the other side of kind of change the industry with, from within, you see other Asian um, artists now also get signed by 
the the big labels and now you see the proliferation of, of k-pop which is amazing and i think you know and we support that not everyone needs to be signed by lady rising but this needs to be like a broader movement and i think we're now like be able to really kind of be part of that conversation and drive that conversation it's a really interesting point jason and what it's making me reflect on is this idea of raising awareness over a specific issue within a community first and and bringing people alongside that idea and then because it's so strong within that community it raises awareness for people that are outside the community as well I, i'm i'm trying to i'm trying to loop this into what's been happening right now in the asian american community with all the violence that has been taking place it, i think i think two things have stood out to me it's right now at the time of this recording for our listeners it's february 11th what's been happening over the last few weeks is that there there have been a lot of uh, violent acts against um, asian americans in the united states for some reason specifically against elderly asian americans and there like one that is a, a terrible thing that's been happening the second one is that the the media hasn't been really been speaking about it that much but what I've noticed over the past few weeks, the anger and the need to share this within our community has now started to make ripple effects across the broader um, media community and, and folks that are not just in the Asian American culture. Anything else that you think that we should be thinking about to help mitigate some of these things in the future? It makes me very upset for sure, because I, I think we're all reminded too that from, from all the amazing successes that that we've seen in um, uh, Asian culture in the US, Crazy Rich Asians, even Bling Empire, however people feel about that show, Parasite, which won an Oscar, right? So some of these things were before COVID and there was this like amazing movement. And then, then it was China virus and it was all like erased. You know, then you had the slurs just happen to, to our community. Pre-COVID, we did a, um, a Lunar New Year event and posted on social media and the comments were COVID into the chat, we're spreading COVID. So joining an, an Asian record label, I think, and being a part of this company during the midst of COVID was actually pretty scary because it, it, it ended up being a place where I was even questioning, this feels like now there's so much negative attention towards our community. Like, do people even want to hear our our music? And I would say there, there was a point, especially like, in, you know, March and April, where things were just so bad, not just from a COVID perspective, but that added element of racism. I think we actually went silent as a company, just didn't really say that much because we didn't want to see the social media comments. And at some point, I think, you know, we really had to think about like how how can we address this? But it's sometimes it's not just about like putting out a statement. So we ended up banding together 24 musicians from around the world. And we did this five hour live stream. We called it Asia Rising Forever to also just be unapologetic about it. We went live on May 6th and we had 8.5 million viewers of that live stream. It, it just, I think we were all stunned as a company. And it trended number one on YouTube and number one on Twitter worldwide. And that was a moment where I felt that A, there was just some humanity in this world. And if you looked at our Twitter at that time, it was just, it was Asian Americans chiming in saying, thank you, Idiot Rising for doing this. Like just, just to showcase all these 
Asian faces during this difficult time, like gave me some, some relief. And then also a lot of outpouring from the non-Asian community, you know, it doesn't end with just live streams, but I think we just keep having this conversation together as a community, ask what more we can do. And when we do see issues that we actually raise our voices, that this is not okay and band together to, to really change on the, the nature of the conversation in, in America. Thank you so much for sharing that story, Jason. That's such an incredible, inspiring way to close out this conversation. And I think moreover, it hits on this fundamental tenet that Jay and I deeply believe in, which is professional and personal are so inextricable. And in your case, when you're able to combine the two, that's how you're able to drive the societal conversation forward. Jason, thank you so, so much for coming on, chatting with us today, sharing your story. That was so impactful and we're so excited to share this with our listeners. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Jay. Thanks so much for tuning in to Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Thank you.